All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2 again. Mark chapter 2, I'm excited about preaching uh, through the book of Mark, and I knew it was going to be fast action and a lot of moving, uh, and uh, here is a great passage about the Lord reaching Levi, better known as Matthew, and um, then having a feast, and all the critics show up wanting to criticize him for having a good time with sinners. And so we're going to preach a little bit on the joy of the Lord is our strength uh, and seeing that we are part of the family of God and we ought to be happy about it. Amen? You know, it's amazing to me. A lot of people look have been baptized in persimmon juice and that their mother-in-laws come to live with them the rest of their life. I tell you what, friend, we ought to be joyful. Folks, we ought to be thankful. We ought to be uh, uh, full of peace and, and joy that the world might want what we got. Uh, I believe a lot of times we need to notify our face uh, and we need to notify our heart that uh, we have the Lord. And that's what happened in this um, uh, passage beginning with verse 13. So let's stand on the Word of God, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. And I'll read just through verse 20. I won't be long tonight because we've got a meeting afterwards getting ready for Wednesday. And so I'll try to get right to the point. He said, he went forth again to the seaside, and the multitude res uh, resorted unto him, and he taught them. You, you talk about a seaside resort. Praise God, that is it, with Jesus. Amen? Just saw that. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipts of custom, and he said to him, Follow me. Notice, and he arose and followed him. And it came to pass that as Jesus had it meet in the house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with publicans, not republicans, publicans, uh, and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, They that are whole have no need of physician, but they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees uh, used to fast, and they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But thy disciples fast not. And Jesus said to them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. You may be seated as I pray. Father, thank you for the joy of the Lord, and thank you, Lord, for the joy of one sinner being saved. Lord, thank you, dear God, for... Uh, Levi's testimony, Matthew's, that he had a feast and he invited as many sinners to the feast as he could so Jesus could preach to them and Jesus could uh, show them life and life more abundant. Lord, help us to be just like Jesus, full of joy, full of uh, anticipation, hope and faith that our testimony might be one that we've found the Savior, and it's a wonderful life. 
So Lord, please use this message and we'll praise you and thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. One time somebody asked me why we Baptists eat all the time. I'm glad that the Kroger manager knew that the Baptists don't drink all the time, but we do have a reputation of eating all the time. I preach against liquor. I don't preach against gluttony. I wish I could, but I don't want to preach anything I don't practice. But uh, I want to say this, friend. We ought to have fellowships with people that are lost as far as bringing them in the house of God. Parents of these bus children should be invited into the house of God. We do that every other year uh, for our Christmas banquet. We'll have it this year. And folks, we have activities like uh, Wednesday night that brings people into the house of God. I think we've got scripture for it. Matthew had a feast, and at that feast, he brought as many of his center friends, probably crooks like he was, as they were tax gatherers, and they had a reputation of being uh, subjects to a, a wicked king that, uh, uh, that just um, took advantage of the people. And so he was very hated. He was a very vile sinner. But I see in verse 13, Jesus saves old sinners just like that. Jesus saves old sinners just like you. You wasn't no saint when Jesus found you. Say amen. And some of you were uh, uh, so far from God that uh, people didn't even believe that you were saved until you proved it. Amen. And that's all right. But I, he saw, number one, the potential, not the problem, in Matthew's heart. He looked on the heart as he did this uh, paraplegic. And he said in verse 13, he went forth again to the seaside and there was a lot of people resorted unto him. Maybe that's where we do get the word resorts. But I want to tell you something. He taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipts of custom, which is usually crooked, and said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now I believe, friend, that shows the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also shows, shows probably that Matthew was under Holy Ghost conviction. He realized he was a sinner. He realized he was a sorry uh, uh, tax collector that was ripping off the people. And he was sick and tired of his sin. I want to tell you the reason most people don't get saved is because they're just not sick and tired of their sin. They think they can go ahead and sin and be joyful. They can go ahead and sin and be happy. They can go ahead and sin and be fulfilled. But I want to tell you something, friend. You're, uh, you got bags with holes in it. You've got an empty well. The, the, the well is dry. There is no source of joy unless there's Jesus. So he saw the potential, not the problem. He looked on the heart. He loves the whole world. And uh, folks, he didn't, he didn't just elect a few as the hyper-Calvinists believe. Folks, whosoever will. And Levi was a vile sinner. And then I see prompt obedience in verse 14. It says he arose and followed him. Now I want to tell you something, friend. He must have had some conviction. He probably had some thoughts about his emptiness and his wickedness and his corruption and his corrupt life. But praise God, I want to tell you something, friend. He had to make a decision. And if you think you just get saved naturally or uh, uh, through going to some kind of cataclysmic school or Baptist training union or, or Sunday school and you just was good all your life, you got another thought coming. There must be a time in the fork of the road that you decide that you're a sinner, you can't save yourself, he's the Savior, and decide to follow him. It's a decision, but it's more than that. It's repentance towards God and away from the world, amen? And so we see this, this sinful lifestyle. Chapter 5 of Luke, 
next door, the physician, uh, enlightens us on this. He said in Luke chapter 5, uh, verse 28, I believe it is, yes, 28, and he left all and rose up and followed him. Now, I want to tell you something. He burned all the bridges. He, let, he knew he couldn't go back to his business. Those fishermen could go back to fishing, but he couldn't go back to crooked collecting, and he couldn't go back to his wickedness. And, folks, we see that he, um, he left his worldly, uh, worldliness and sin and followed Jesus. Folks, without conviction, there is no conversion. And, folks, without repentance, there is no conversion. There must be a time where you turn to the Lord. And when you turn to the Lord and believe and commit yourself unto Him, there is a turn away from the world. I'm sick and tired of these, these folks that say you can just pray a prayer and go to church and be saved. No, I want to tell you something. You need to pray the prayer of repentance. And folks, that is belief. And when you believe in someone, you follow them. Not believe about, but believe in. And then I see, third of all, Matthew's feast. Matthew's feast. It says, and it came to pass as Jesus was set at meat in his house. Now that's Matthew's house. Probably a nice house. And he probably was a big house. Because uh, 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 this occupation of tax collecting is a very frugal, uh, a fruitful uh, uh, endeavor because he worked for the crooked king. Amen? And you can ask Miss Stephanie Bird, being in accounting in tax season, you can just get rich. Amen? No, no, not really. But, uh, you know, thank, I got her attention. But anyway, I want to say this, friend. Folks, uh, he was rich. He had it all. But I want to tell you what he did. When he got saved, he realized that his what, riches wasn't enough that his big house wasn't enough, that all he had wasn't enough, that he'd found the real life and life more abundant, and he wanted sinners to come to the house of God, to his house, not to sin anymore, not to drink and party and carouse and be corrupt, but to meet Jesus. Folks, we need to set up situations that we can get people to Jesus. I believe it's all right to take a sinner out to lunch and, and, and have the preacher sitting there or having a deacon sitting there or just you sitting there and have God sitting there and don't compromise. Now, when they want to drink, you don't drink. When they want to dope, you don't dope. You're different. You don't join sinners, praise God. But you're a friend to sinners, not a friendly sinner. And so it's an act of joy. It was an act of gratitude. It was an act of honor. It was an act of obedience. I want to tell you something. I know Matthew really got saved because he didn't care what those uh, crazy uh, friends of his thought. And I want to tell you something, if you really say, you don't care what the lost crowd thinks anymore. You care about what God thinks. And you're not such a secret agent for Jesus, you're a public witness. But at the same time, you show some good common sense and build relationships, not in compromise, folks, but I mean bring sinners into the house of God. Bring sinners to a place that they can hear the gospel. And folks, this day and age, they're not just going to walk in this church. You must reach them. And the best way to reach them is show them a holy difference. Look at verse 18 and 19. Uh, we see the problem here, though, is those Pharisees hadn't gone away yet. And they look at Jesus, and they see this joy, and they see this party going on, and they ain't had a, day, they ain't had a happy day in their life. I want to tell you something. A Pharisee is miserable. A religious person is miserable. You know why? They got all these do's and don'ts and they can't keep the do's and they, and they, and they can't uh, uh, keep from doing the don'ts. They're religious Pharisees. They're hypocrites if you think law can save you. If you think religion can save you. 
Folks, a religious person is miserable because they cannot live up to it. We're sinners. Somebody, Somebody say amen there. We're all sinners, and we need the Savior, and we need His power, and we need His presence, and we need His Spirit to overcome our sinfulness even after salvation. And so Matthew had a powerful change in his life. Oh, I mean, he had such a powerful change uh, that that, um, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eat with the publicans and sinners, verse 16, they said unto his disciples, How is it you eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? You can just see the sarcasm and the criticism in in their soul. And Matthew had such a powerful change that he found the wicked publican and made him an apostle. He found the penman of, um, of, um, of, of several corrupt documents probably and extortion and praise God he became the penman of the Holy Ghost and wrote the first gospel and thank God that theme is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the fulfillment of all the law. That's the theme of Matthew and Matthew was a ta- a, a penman of the devil before he got saved but he became a penman for the Holy Ghost after he got saved, don't think God can't use you. They found, Jesus found him condemned, he became justified. Jesus found him an, ask, an outcast of most people because he took their money, but he, he made him accepted in the beloved. And folks, they found him a subject, a slave, so to speak, to the corrupt society and the wicked politics of that day to collect these taxes to the, of the ruler of the nation was making him a slave. He became a servant. He became a servant of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I guarantee you if the song was written, which I know it wasn't, that they were probably singing around that table, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. And folks, I want to tell you something. Matthew's feast, what we're going to have in December, and we ought to call it that. Of course, the critics had their uh, opinions and their questions. And folks, uh, he, they started challenging to Jesus. They said, why do you drink with sinners? And I don't believe it was fermented a minute. I believe it was a, a wine that was not fermented, or Jesus would be a liar. But I believe that he, they, they ate, and they had a good time, and they were just having a good time, and they were probably smiling, which a lot of you ought to try. It, it, it's easier on your face than a frown. And... Um, and, and, and they que- he questioned them again. So Jesus turned that criticism into three interesting comparisons of what he is. Number one, he said, I'm a physician. I'm a physician. Look at verse 16. It says, and when the scribes and Pharisees saw him with the publican sinners, he said, how can you eat and drink? And Jesus heard, unto, heard it, and he said to them, they, they that are whole need no, no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, sinners, but sinners to repentance. Folks, it's soon evidence that Jesus was deliberately associating himself with some outcasts. But he was there because Levi has now become Matthew, and Matthew means the gift of God. Here's a sinner that has become the gift of God. I will tell you how to reach people. I'll tell you what the Bible says about it. There's a Greek word called oikos. It's not, that's not some yogurt. It is, it is a Greek word that means and his household. You find it in Acts chapter 16 where the Philippian jailer came and he brought 
Paul and Silas to his household. The word is oikos. That's your sphere of influence. I want to tell you something, folks. We need to use our sphere of influence. And especially in the new converts class, you've got about 18 months before your influence, if you live for God, will give you up. And all you'll have is Christian friends. But I want to tell you something, friend. There is a, a minimum of eight people, once a person gets saved, that they could reach. But we've got to train them quick. And we've got to instill in them the desire, and only the Holy Spirit can do it, but we sure can put some fuel on the fire and say, hey, listen, you need to reach a friend. After I got saved, the first thing I want to do is win my daddy. First thing I want to do. It took me about 20 years to do it. But I want to tell you something, friend. Christ comes to us in our need, and, 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 and he's the great physician. Folks, I want to tell you something. If you got healed by some miracle drug and you kept it to yourself, you'd be a sorry person. I mean, if you had cancer, and there's so much going, uh, cancer going around, so much, uh, so many people's got it. But if you found a cure for it, or you found a doctor that knew how to cure it, and you kept it to yourself, you would be such a, uh, a bad steward of the blessing on your life. And friend, you got more than the cure of cancer. You got more than the cure of some incurable disease. You're, you're cured from going to hell. And you're saved by the grace of God. And folks, I believe we ought to bring sinners to the house of God. I believe we ought to bring them to our house, not compromise. But I mean, folks, we, you know, the Bible says we ought to be uh, not contaminated, but it don't mean we'd be isolated. We ought to be separated, but not isolated. Some of y'all won't even speak to a sinner. Some of you are not even friendly towards a sinner. Some of you never associate with a sinner. Well, I want to tell you something, friend. Jesus did. Matthew did. And thank God he wasn't compromised because he met the great physician. The great physician always has a perfect diagnosis. And you know what that perfect diagnosis is? We're sinners. And we need Jesus. There is no way on this earth you can save yourself. Matthew writes a lot about that, about him being king of kings and lord of lords. A lot about Calvary and a lot about the death, burial, and resurrection in Matthew. And folks, he never got over being saved. Folks, I want you to know a great physician is also one that has a final and complete cure. But also, a great physician is, and he pays the bill. Amen? Well, if you go to the doctor and he says, well, don't, don't worry about it. It's on me this time. You'd smile as you went out of the doctor's office. Amen? You'd tell everybody about Dr. Lester. Praise God. He just paid my bill. Amen? That won't happen on this earth, but praise God, you ought to rejoice that Jesus paid it all. He diagnosed you as a sinner. He touched you and cured you, and praise God, he paid it all. What a doctor. And folks, I want to tell you something. There's a lot of patients that do not know about him. I mean, there's people lost and dying and going to hell all over the world. They don't know about the great physician. Folks, there's people that know about him but refuse to trust him because they're too busy trusting themselves, Pharisee, religionists. Folks, being a Baptist won't save you anymore. Going into a garage makes you a car. You must be born again. Amen. Those who will not admit that they need him. There's a lot of people who won't admit it. They're their own physician. They believe in home health care. They just want to cure themselves. You'll never cure yourself. It's an incurable disease called sin. And folks, I want to tell you something. Jesus proved in his timely words with the par paralytic, he said, uh, he saw the deepest and sorest need in that man's life. He said, your sins be forgiven. 
He didn't start with his body. He started with his soul. Amen. And he proved that he was the Son of God. Then his true words with authority said, I'm the Son of Man and you are forgiven if you'll only trust the death, burial, and resurrection. But I want to close by saying that he also pictures himself after that criticism as the bridegroom. Look at verse 18. It says, The disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast. Now John's disciples fast because he was in jail a lot of the time and, and uh, uh, they were afraid he wasn't going to get out and they, and they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And he were at a party with some sinners, having a feast, having a luncheon, having a supper, having a great time. And Jesus said to them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast when the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the day will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. See, a, a, a good Pharisee fasts twice a week whether they wanted to or not. It was on Monday, and it was on Thursday. It was the law. By the way, they had the Ten Commandments, but they also had about 5,648 other laws that they put on man. And I mean, they were all uh, strained uh, to try to keep those, those things, and they were sad. They were just blue. Um, if you had to fast all the time, you'd be sad too, amen? Feed a Baptist, they'll smile. But I want to say this, folks, they, uh, Jesus brings gladness, not sadness. Hey, think, legalism, that's Jewish religion, is burdensome because you cannot keep the Ten Commandments. And you sure can't t- keep 6,000 commandments they add to it. And folks, we see that the, the uh, Pharisees challenged Jesus' joy. He challenged Matthew's joy. I want to tell you what's missing today that's very attractive in the Christian life. Joy. Joy. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. There's not a sinner on this earth wants, wants what you got if you look like you don't like it. And that you have been to the doctor and he just gave you bad news. No, friend, you've been to the doctor and he just healed you for eternity. And you're set free. But I want to tell you this. The second reason that you ought to be joyful, not that he had a proper diagnosis and saved your soul, but you're... You're his, you're his bride. You know, a wedding feast is not a place to be sad. Now, a funeral, I think you ought to not crack jokes too much. And sometimes I get to a funeral home and it just seems like nobody, nobody remembers there's somebody in the casket up there. Everybody's just having a party. I mean, they're just rejoicing. And that's fine. I guess it's escapism. And, you know, praise God, if they're saved, you ought to rejoice. But a lot of times it just seems like it's reunion time at the funeral home. But I want to tell you something, friend. I've never seen a sad wedding. Well, let me check on that now. But I'll tell you this, friend. If it's a true wedding, and I mean you truly have a great wife, remember the happy times? Amen. I know I was grinning like a possum when she walked in the back door. Amen. Tried not to lock my knees. I said, praise God, how was I so stupid that I waited four years to ask or to say yes to her proposal. No, to, to ask her. To be, I mean, she walked down the aisle, the closer she got to me, the more I smiled. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to tell you something. I didn't have to have wine. I didn't have to have dancing at my wedding. I just had her. Praise God. Woo! My daddy always treated her kind and loved her so much. And 
and was uh, was a good father-in-law to to my to my wife, even though he was passed out a lot of the time. And I want to tell you this, friend. My mother and father gave me their blessing. As a matter of fact, they would have blessed me out if I hadn't married Miss Connie. <laughs> they said, son, go ahead. You ain't going to never find somebody that good. And they were encouraging it for years. And I said, well, i got to be sure. Boy, I almost blew it. Life's not supposed to be a funeral. Life's a wedding feast. Amen? I mean, folks, listen, some of the greatest most wonderful times on this earth is being married to the right person and having that closeness and, and folks spending time together. That doesn't make you married. That's the evidence that you're married. Amen? Uh, talking to each other. Um, it's evidence. Loving each other. Hey, even introducing her to someone because you're so proud to be with her. And folks, the Christian life ought to be uh, the same way, we ought to have evidence that we belong to the bridegroom. Amen. He said it right here. I'm not going to pout. I'm going to shout. I'm not going to frown. I'm not going to fast right now. I am going to rejoice at this feast because Matthew got saved. A paralytic just got saved, praise God. And you can get saved if you'll only listen to me at this dinner party. Amen. And so, folks, I believe... One of the greatest things we ought to have in, this, on this, in these last days is joy. Just joy. Don't get over it. You know, it's a sad thing when people get over being married and wish they were unmarried or somebody's unfaithful. It breaks my heart. I counsel all the time with this problem of people breaking up and people breaking each other's heart and people breaking a holy vow to God. And children wondering, what is happening? Why isn't daddy home anymore? It's sad. But folks, that's not our marriage to God. Folks, he is a bridegroom that will never let us down. He is faithful and true. He is loving and kind. And he ministers our every need. And folks, he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives much more grace and his love abounds. And folks, listen, the evidence that we're saved should come out not as a mournful, painful, critical, cynical Pharisee. Some of you are not attractive spiritually because I don't even think you like me half the time because you don't speak to me. You don't look at me. You don't even smile. You don't even shake my hand. You look like you come here to serve God in a marine barrack somewhere. That ought not be. We ought to be happy people. And I'm not talking about being high, strung, and, and wound up like I am all the time. God help you. I hope you're not like me all the time. I'd, we'd run into each other. But I want to tell you this, friend. There ought to be a peace and a joy and a purpose in your life that's so attractive. And they ought to know when you serve God, you're doing it because you love God, not because you love attention or getting written up in a bulletin. Say amen right there. God help us. So number one, I believe what ought to bring some joy at the feast with the Lamb is assurance of salvation. First John, the whole book, seven times says born of God. It says you'll keep his commandments, you're born of God. Hey, listen, uh, you won't yield to the sinful nature. You'll die to self. You'll love, you'll love not the world, neither things of the world. His commandments are not grievous, 1 John chapter 5. You'll do right automatically. You'll turn from sin. 
You'll have a blessed assurance. On and on. It says you're born of God. You'll love the brethren. Amen. You know that you're passing death and life because you love the brethren. If you don't love people, something's wrong with you. And some of you have to train yourself because you never have, but you ought to try it. And folks, that's all evidence. That's birthmarks. That's seven sneezes of life. When the young man arose uh, from the dead, he sneezed seven times. And folks, that meant he was alive. I know my wife is alive. She sneezes 28 times every time she sneezes. That's just her personality, amen, praise God. She can't help it. But it's assurance. There ought to be some evidence in your life. And I want to tell you something, the greatest evidence, 1 John 1, 4, is that you have joy. Joy. Number two, I believe what brings joy in your, in your Christian life is the will of God. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. My time's up, but I'm going to take a couple more minutes. Hebrews chapter 12. I don't think I got the pulpit to five till, so amen. Y'all know better. Some of you got the clock on me. I, I click, okay. Go ahead and click it again. Look at this. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says this. Wherefore, seeing we're also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Folks, that's the witnesses of chapter 11. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that so does easily beset us. Folks, weights are not sin. It's just things that are not necessary. Like our attitude getting in the way. And it says, and, and it says, and the sin that does so easily beset you. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Listen to this now. Looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Folks, if God Almighty, Jesus Christ, can count it joy to give up the splendor of heaven and come to this earth and die on a cross for you, we ought, to, we ought to have the joy of knowing that the will of God is precious. Just to be in the will of God. I'm going to tell you, the saddest people besides Pharisees in this church are people out of the will of God. And most of you, are not, most people out of the will of God, they not, they're not even in church. They don't want to be in church. They want to talk about it. You can't push them in church. You can't make them go to church. But I want to tell you something. You ever looked at their face lately? They're sad. They're sad. I want to tell you something. There's no joy in this world. There's no joy in politics. There's no joy in the thrills of this world because they're, they're short-lived. But there's a joy in the will of God. The joy in the will of God. I believe there's joy, John 15, 11, in abiding. These things have I written to you that your joy may be full and that my joy might remain in you. What a precious gift that is. That you can have the joy of the Lord. You know what the joy of the Lord is? Even though you have crosses and battles, you still can have joy because you know through that battle, through that cross, through that uh, persecution, there's fruit that's going to remain. And so folks, yield it in a body. Look at John 15, 11 real quick. John 15, 11. What a holy rebuke to a bunch of sad Pharisees. It says in verse 11, These things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Folks, I want his, I want his joy to remain in me. Don't you? And I want to tell you what, I'm a moody person. Y'all don't know that, but I am. And I want to tell you something, friend. I don't want to be moody. Some, some, some people are afraid to speak to some of y'all in this room because you are so moody. We don't know what we're going to catch you up, down, or sideways. That ought not be. 
There ought to be a level of joy in your life. There ought to be a level of peace in your life that's very attractive. Very attractive. And I want to say this, Pharisee, if you want to mourn all the time and you want to find fault all the time and you want to, you want to fast all the time, go right ahead, but you won't have many friends and you won't reach many sinners. I guarantee you won't because nobody will want to be around you. But praise God, you get a holy dose of God's joy, there'll be people that's lost that want to be around you. Because I want to tell you why. The saddest group I know is sinners going to hell and they need to see a difference. Amen? They need to see a smile by faith whether you feel like smiling or not. Amen. And They need to really see you smile when you have every reason to frown. These things have I spoken to you saying this. You need to abide. You need to bear forth fruit. And that fruit of holiness is, is John 6, 6, 22. That fruit of good works. That fruit of praise. That fruit of another Christian. That fruit of the Spirit. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. It will jump all over people if you'll just yield to it. And it's not plastic fruit. It's eternal fruit. It's wholesome fruit. It's real. And then I believe that there's joy in finishing your course. My life verse, and I've referred to it a lot, I heard a great message on it the other day by Paul Chapel, But Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I use this verse. If anybody ever asked me to sign their Bible, which is not often, uh, but that I don't mind because you wouldn't read my name anyway the way I write. But um, it says, none of these things move me. Now they said, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to get killed. You're going to be put in prison. He said, none of these things move me. Neither count my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with what? Joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Oh, I've got to close, but I'm going to tell you something. There's Nehemiah chapter 8, in the great revival chapter of all the Old Testament. And he read the Bible. He began to weep. And then Nehemiah said, hey, wait a minute. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice, we built the wall. Rejoice, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. And folks, the joy of the Lord becomes our strength when we have the assurance that we're saved and that we're sanctified and we ought to be thrilled, filled, and satisfied. Amen? It's attractive. I'm trying to help you to see that it's attractive to be a happy wife to a great bridegroom and that he'll never let you down. He'll never forsake you. He'll treat you like you need to be treated. And I want to tell you something. A sad wife is a public rebuke to your husband. All the wives begin to smile, amen, a little bit. There's one frown, praise God, be honest. But I want to tell you this, it's the joy of knowing that you're married to a man of God, amen. Not a rich man, uh, not, not somebody that's uh, known by everybody on, in, the, in the county, that's known in heaven. And I want to tell you something, friend, you have got married to someone better than your husband, you're married to the Lord. He said, I am the bridegroom. And these folks are going to be my bride. Matthew just became my bride. The paralytic, he was probably running laps around that feast. Praise God. He probably hadn't got over it yet. He didn't go home. He's probably lapping around saying, praise God, I can run. I can, but I'm saved and we're going to heaven. And folks, the Pharisees looked on. Oh, look at look at it. Bunch of fanatics. Bunch of, bunch of, People don't even realize they need to be mourning and trying to keep the law and 
They're, trying to, they're not even good religionists. Look at them. And Jesus said, wait a minute. I'm going to rebuke you straight out. Your sadness is a rebuke to me because you are trying to keep the law and you never can. And those Pharisees must have said, hmm, think about that. The joy of the Lord is our strength. 3 John chapter 4 says there's no greater joy than our children walk in truth. Let me just say this, friend. You got little babies? You got little toddlers? You got a house full of little kids? And you get tired of getting them ready and dressing them up for church, which you should make it a special place. It's not a ball game. You don't dress down to come to the house of God. You respect the house of God. You teach your children that. You put the best bow tie they got. I hate bow ties because you can't wear it loose like this. Amen. You, you teach them, hey, we're going to the house of God. We're going to hear the man of God. You don't criticize the man of God all the way to church because one day your kids might grow up and be a rebellious teenager and they'll need a man of God. But I'll tell you what you do. You just put your whole heart into it. Put your life into raising your children. You love them. You show them the love of God. And when they turn out right, there's no greater joy. That's what the Bible says. I know this is talking about spiritual children, but I guarantee you, friend, I know I've raised four children, or my wife has, and I, and I observed very closely. There's no greater joy. Not only is Mark giddy, I think Bernella's come home giddy. Amen, praise God. That's good. No greater joy. And she, and she knows what he almost went to, where he was headed before God intercepted his life. There's no greater joy. Selling your house, going over half across the, the world, giving everything you, you got to a camp called Camp Rhino. I almost called it Camp Joy. Camp Rhino. There's no greater joy of seeing God answer prayer. John 16, 24 says you pray. And your prayers are answered that your joy may be full. John 16, 21 says you travail. And the reason you travail, you can have joy and travail because you know the baby's coming. The fruit's coming. It's worth it. And folks, in context, I just want to say this. Psalms 126, 5 and 6. And I believe the happiest person there was Matthew because he got saved, but also he was excited because his friends were about to get saved. They were about to meet the Savior. Think about it. And I don't think there's any greater joy than leading somebody to the Lord after you're saved. I believe that. I believe with all my heart. I mean, I have been so excited after I've won somebody. Lord, I almost got a ticket one time. Fogged up. I'm not a shouter publicly, but I, I, I fogged up the windshield shouting after uh, Mr. Coker got saved. We prayed for him 13 years. And on a cold, dark Thursday night, he trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior as Johnny McNeese was playing basketball out in the, out in the uh, uh, driveway with some people that were visiting to keep them occupied. Being a good second man. I, never, I, never, I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over it. And folks, I want to tell you, it's a great joy. It's a great joy, Brother Butch, when you got saved after many years of Easter coming here looking lonely, no offense, and uh, praying, hoping her husband would come. Finally, one Thursday night, he got saved. I think Brother Lamar was with me, and he got so excited, he backed into the ditch, which is par for his driving. And uh, we just, you know, we had to. We had to almost get a, 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 a record to pull us out of the ditch. 
because we were so excited about Butch getting saved. No greater joy. I want to tell you something, friend. We have got a problem if we do not get excited when people get saved. We've done got over what we got. We, 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 we just come expecting nothing and, and leave empty as we came. No. I tell you, somebody gets saved or the Word of God gets preached and people hear it, we ought to rejoice all the way to the restaurant and even after we pay the bill. Amen. But I want you to see this one more verse, two more verses. Psalms 126, 5 and 6. I wanted to sing this song, but we couldn't get the tune, so we'll just read it. It says, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. That's enough for me. I want to say this, friend. The Pharisees, all they thought was tears. All they thought was fasting. All they thought was drudgery of religion. And Jesus said, I'm the bridegroom. <laughs> that brings a smile to my face right there. I'm in the family of God. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And when I get real down and real sad, which I do sometimes, I have uh, some trouble sometimes with emotions, I just think about being saved. It brings me right out of the dumps. I want to show you one more verse. He that soweth, he that goeth forth. Now that's a requirement, goeth forth. And weeping, that means you got a burden. Bearing precious seed. Word of God, amen. Jehovah Witnesses do not have it. Mormons do not have it. They got some false doctrine. That's why they look so sad going door to door. A couple of Mormons knocked on my door and I looked sad. And I said, man, did I look sad? I think I did look sad. I ran them down just to smile at them. I ran them down. I really did. I ran to their car and waited on them. Stalked the poor couple of ladies. Don't take that out of context. Waited on them. Here they come. And I said, hey. I was leaning on the car. I wouldn't even let them in the door. So I just want to let you know you caught me off guard. Wasn't dressed properly. Didn't have my heart right with God. But I want to tell you something. I'm saved. You're what? I said, I'm saved. I tell you, it's the blood of Jesus that saved me. I said, Brigham Young and his 15 wives didn't save me. I'm telling you. Joseph Smith didn't save me. Jesus saved me. And I'm just so glad about it. And I want you to read the gospel. I want you to read this book. And they, they were so taken back. They said, okay, we'll read it. I said, will you read it every day for 30 days? I challenge you. Because if you just read uh, John chapter 3, 30 days, uh, God will speak to your heart. I just want to tell you, ladies, that um, I've never got over being saved. And I'm praying for you. Now, folks, why do we have to be scared of cults? They don't have the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. But it says, he that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seed. I got hung up on that precious seed, didn't I? shall doubtless come again with what? Rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. There's going to be two crowds at the judgment seat of Christ. And I want to be in the crowd that says, he says, well done, thy good and what? Faithful servant. Not celebrity, servant. Been faithful over a few things. I'll make you rule over many. Enter into the what? Joy. I don't like this term because the contemporaries use it too much. But I believe we have something to celebrate when we come to the house of God. And I don't mean we party and I don't mean we jump up and down and get the world's music in here and celebrate that way. That's flesh. That's not going to do the thing. That's not going to make it. But I believe there ought to be a, a, a celebration in our heart every time we walk in this place. 
that we're saved, that we belong to Jesus. And then when we sing a song, it's not, well, do we have to sing all five verses? I standing up, uh, you know, corns on my feet and bunions on my toes. Good night, please. You know, it's too cold in this auditorium. It's too hot. You know, we got to pay for these pews. Uh, good night, he's preached too long. He said he'd only do 30 minutes so we could have all these meetings and serve God and go through the motions and grievously serve him. Hush! Is your attitude when it ought to be. Whew, praise God. Hallelujah. Thank the Lord, I could be out getting drunk somewhere tonight. I could be out running around on my wife tonight. I could have a broken home. I could have five children on dope. I could, I could be in prison today. I could be in hell tonight. But thank God, I am part of the family of God. He is my bridegroom. I am the bride, and he'll never divorce me. And that ought to bring joy to your soul and you ought to have celebration in your soul and you ought to have a strength in your soul because you know that you know that you know that you belong to Him. Father, thank you for the message. Use it for your glory. God, I get tired and I'm old, but I never want to get over the privilege of preaching for you and ministering for you and sowing the seed for you and even being heartbroken for you when people walk out the door and never come back. Lord God, give us a Holy Ghost joy that comes through abiding in you and realizing that we're in you.